Hello, everybody. We are brought to you today by Routine. When you sleep, you lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, mainly from expelling vapors and sweating. What do you do first thing in the morning? Well, most people wake up, don't drink water, and they go straight for the caffeine. They drink coffee, and by doing so, you actually dehydrate yourself even more. So Morning Routine is a product that contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, no sugar. They come in these little single-serve packets, and they are part of every single morning for me. When I wake up, the first thing I do is grab my shaker bottle, pour one of these little single-serve packets in, shake it up, and drink it. Uh, genuinely, the days I use Morning Routine, versus the days I don't. The days I do, I truthfully, truthfully, truthfully feel hydrated. Uh, I feel like my brain is just working in a way that it doesn't on days that I don't start my day off with one of these. Routine, trusted ingredients, made convenient. If you go to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first order. Again, this is just a daily morning supplement that I take. Um, and a little hack for everyone listening too, I take these first thing in the morning. Sometimes when I feel just dehydrated or maybe if you decide to have an alcoholic beverage, they're also great in my opinion after having a, if you have a drink, um, having one of these afterwards before you go to bed to rehydrate, just any part of your day, um, you can plug one of these in uh, just to rehydrate yourself and get going. And like I said, go to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. Today, we're also brought to you by NeuroRoast. Today's episode is brought to you by NeuroRoast, a company that's dedicated to helping you optimize your brain function and overall well-being. NeuroRoast's flagship product is their premium mushroom coffee, which is made with an organic single-origin coffee and their signature blend of five different functional mushrooms, including cordyceps, lion's mane, reishi, turkey tail, and chaga. Mushroom coffee is a new and exciting way to supercharge your day. Unlike regular coffee, which can cause jitters and crashes, mushroom coffee provides a more balanced and sustained energy boost, allowing you to stay focused and productive throughout the day. And with NeuroRoast ground and instant coffee options, you can enjoy the benefits of mushroom coffee wherever and whenever you need it. And here's some great news for my listeners today. NeuroRoast is offering an exclusive just discount just for you. If you use the code Shane White during checkout at NeuroRoast.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-A-S-T.com, you'll get 30% off your order. Uh, whether you choose ground or instant coffee, both will work. So again, that's Shane White at, at checkout for 30% off your purchase. So if you're looking for a natural and delicious way to boost your focus, memory, and overall cognitive function, give NeuroRoast Mushroom Coffee a try. With their commitment to quality and sustainability, you can trust that you're getting the best possible coffee for your brain and your body. Uh, one last time, use that code ShaneWhite at checkout to get 30%. Um, that is the prompt they gave me. Love the guys at NeuroRoast. Genuinely, folks, uh, from me to you, th their coffee is delicious. It does honestly have a different sort of caffeination way of it. The best way to describe it is it doesn't give you the jitters or the crash. Um, I love their stuff. It's the, I get the flavored mushroom coffee, ground coffee. Um, to be honest, it's one of my favorite afternoon coffee products. 
uh, if I'm going to have a cup of coffee for some reason in the afternoon, whether it's a long, busy day, whatever it may be, um, I love taking their stuff because it really doesn't give you this like jittery, super elevated, caffeinated feeling, but you feel like you have energy and you don't have the crash later. So genuinely do love NeuroRoast. Again, their website is N-E-U-R-O-A-S-T dot com and the code is Shane White. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. The episode is up after this. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Shane White Show. I'm pumped today. This is a good one. Robert Broom on the podcast. Robert, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How you been? It's good to reconnect. Uh, yeah, I know it's been a while. <laughs> I was gonna say, I feel like we've. It's funny we've connected more in the last uh, probably year and a half than we had before that for a little while after RX. But uh, saw you at Expo, which was sweet. We'll get into all yep. that. Yep. The booth looked amazing, and then um, yeah, I'm just excited to have you on, buddy. It's been a long time. We've been talking about it for a little while, so I'm excited to finally get it done. No, I know it's it's always cool to see people from who are at RX Bar kind of doing their own thing and then crossing paths down the line. It's very very cool. So fun, yeah. yeah. I feel like, uh, and I think I've said this on here a million times, but it's it's so fun going to Expo because there's just so many different things everyone from RX is doing now. Yep. But we all have that same uh, that same little. And it's so funny because it's really not in the grand scheme of all of our careers. Even now, it's it's really wasn't that long of a period of time that we were all there. But we all are well, like everyone's everyone knows each other because of it. And I feel like we've, yeah. we've been able to go do cool things because of just being a part of that small sliver of time. It, and it wasn't a long period of time. We we're all there, but there was, we were in like that hyper growth phase and we we're just adding so many people onto the team that it was just like a lot of great kind of CPG talent all there at once. And then we've all kind of spread our wings at different places. So. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, I, I want to, I'll have you kind of go through what you're doing today, but I would love to kick it up just to kind of continue with what you're saying. Yeah. I remember it being funny. I, I want to see if you remember this. Um, I remember I started towards the end of 2017 at RX. You were, I think yeah. you were pretty close after me too. I think we started relatively close in proximity. Just after the acquisition, whenever that was, I don't Yeah. <laughs> was I was like, right but, around then too. Yeah. But either way, I always thought it was cool for everyone listening who doesn't know Robert's story. I came in, I came in like with a, essentially like a finance role, like a strategic mm -hmm. growth type of role. I mean, I wouldn't say it was anything revolutionary. However, like all the roles that were being brought on were kind of in that same boat. It was like, okay, finance needed three finance people. Marketing needed three more marketing people. But then Robert got brought on and it was like the coolest, most like uh, secret role within the organization. It was just reporting yeah. to Peter like in the kitchen, cooking something up. Essentially, what I always thought, which I thought was so yeah. cool. I didn't get, I feel like we didn't talk that much back then, but I remember yeah. early when you joined, I'm like, what is this guy working on? It's super I, cool. He's just like cooking shit up in the kitchen for Peter. This is sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I like, so when I applied to RX Bar, it was supposed to be a normal marketing role, right? It was like some sort of marketing associate role. Oh, I didn't I know that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I did like the normal like interview with the marketing team. And at the time, Peter was doing all the final round interviews. And uh, those were kind of legendary. I feel like those had like, uh, everyone knew the Peter interview was going to be kind of a crazy one. And so yeah. I went into that. And I was kind of describing how I had started my own like kind of ice cream business, I wanted to get into food. And halfway through the conversation, he was just like, I want you to do TIG. And I was like, what the hell is TIG? Like to that point, it had always been about like this marketing associate role, like doing a like, couponing and stuff. And he was like, you're doing TIG, like take this job. Like you won't have a better experience. You'll report into me. 
Uh, he was like, I'll print you the offer letter right now. And I was oh, just wow. like, yeah. So, and he was basically like said, gave me an ultimatum essentially and was like, do this thing called TIG or like walk, walk away. And I was like, I'll do it. Uh, oh, and he was so, like, I'm not giving you the boring role that you're, you're applied for. Yeah. He was basically like, you're, you will do well with this. And I didn't, he still hadn't explained to me what it was, but I just kind of trusted him. And he was like, I'll take you under my wing. I'll show you like how to do like the R and D and the brand side. Like you won't get a better experience. And so that's like all I needed to hear. And he literally walked back to HR, uh, to like Sarah or someone in the back and printed an offer letter. And I like signed it right there. And and That's then I learned incredible. about what TIG was, but I went into it totally blind. Yeah. Oh, and were you at that point? I can't remember all this. Were you living in Chicago even? Yeah, I was living in Chicago. Okay. I was just moving back to Chicago. Um, my now current fiance was in Chicago. So I was trying to figure out how to get back there. And I was kind of, uh, I had a couple other offers out. So I was trying to figure out what, what was the right role for me and, um, Something about the way Peter like offered that job, I was just like, I can't turn this down. There's too much uh, like excitement and like mystery behind the role. So <laughs> it's funny, probably now. I mean, we're we're now I'm fast forwarding a bunch, but can you? It'd be weird to think what your your career would have looked like if you would have been like, yeah, it's too big of a risk. Like, no, nah, I'm not yeah. taking that. I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the only reason I'm doing Mooski today is because I did that role. Um, so cool. So he, cool. I mean, if you think about it. What, and for, for those watching, what TIG was, was it was a savory snack bar um, that Peter kind of developed on the side and RX bar was kind of taking off. So he didn't have the time to really work on it, but he had like a rudimentary formula and he knew I had like made ice cream. So he was kind of like, oh, you can do R&D. So he kind of threw me into to the wolves and had me basically develop this savory snack bar on the side. Um, and so that that gave me the core foundation of learning R&D and how to develop snack bars, like learn about like binding systems and flavors and uh, inclusions and basically like um, the the foundation for like creating bars. So, yeah. So cool. Yeah. I was gonna say for anyone listening, I would assume 99% of people <laughs> don't know what to, they're like, what, what was that? But it's yeah. funny because is it, it was an innovation that inevitably didn't actually end up coming fully to market. It came into a little bit. I mean, I'm actually like blurry memory of exactly. We launched, we launched on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon. And we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on Amazon for a little. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bummer. It never, it never got wings. I remember it being delicious, like fresh out. And then it was just tough with shelf life. Um, it was, yeah. it, it was a good product. I mean, it was very innovative. I would say that a savory snack bar, like you're already dealing with the challenge that like, savory for an item that's traditionally sweet so there's a lot of like consumer headwinds from that perspective but i mean yeah i think in terms of the execution of it i know kind had done some cliff had done like a savory bar and a little biased but i thought ours tasted really well yeah. uh tasted really good but i just think that the concept was really foreign and probably too far out there for most consumers. Now, do you think, I mean, you were really close to it. I always had this feeling and I'm sure you vividly remember the same meeting I'm alluding to. We, we sat in this meeting about a budget decision <laughs> around TIG yeah. and I'll, I'll just never forget being like, it was just a, it was like wrong place, wrong time. Like if this totally. was just Robert on his own, like what you're yep. doing with Mooski, if, if this was him with TIG, I think it would have had legs and we could have, I, I think it really could have gotten some some legs. It just was like not the right time for the organization to launch a new brand. Yeah, I think, because I think a lot about, because you can learn a lot about why something doesn't work or why something failed or whatever. Like it's so important to think about those things and, and digest them. And I, I think you're totally right. It was just 
trying to do this separate brand that was kind of like under this parent brand, but still tied to RX, I think. And then the org structure, I think was a difficult part too, because you, you had to focus on what was making money for the business, but yeah. still dedicating some of those shared resources to TIG. It just, I think it got complicated. And I, I think like it needed to be probably more separate and like have its own like organic growth versus like a lot of pressure to become something or the next big kind of brand under the RX portfolio. But um, yeah, it was definitely a wild, wild ride. Wild ride. Yeah. yeah. I only yeah. got to feel a little bit of it, but you were living that for so long. Did yeah. you know, is it dead, dead? Is it gone? Is anyone like, is the intellectual property owned by Kellogg at this point? I have no idea, but it is, it is dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is as dead as dead can be. But the funny story there is my, my fiance's uh, dad, like somehow, like, I don't know if they didn't clear out all the Amazon warehouse or something, but literally like two years after like was like oh i just got a tig bar on amazon and i was like no Don't, way do not oh, eat that's that so that's like funny i was like that's probably like three years old um, oh my god but, you know what's so funny i never thought about that because if we yeah. yeah just depending on how we set it up like we it could just be sitting there if it's not auto removed if no one did that it's yeah. just sitting there i have to go look now i'm gonna have to go hunt down it was so yeah that was on there for a while i'm pretty sure the social media page is still up and the website was up for a while but um it was just, it was very, like, I learned so much in such a short amount of time. Like, and I literally, I had to go through that experience to basically learn what not to do, like how yeah. to not develop products, how to not bring things to market. Like, um, it was very uh, formative for me. So, yeah, that's obviously, a, which I love hitting on in this podcast is like yeah. that, that it didn't work out, which is that's yeah. part of learning and which propelled you to do what you're doing today. What would you say was the biggest, if you had to boil that whole ocean, what was the biggest takeaway you learned with all of your time working on TIG? Jeez. I mean, I, I don't know if I could boil it down to one thing, but from the product development side, I think just um, developing a product that you can develop on the bench top or small scale that also is um can be made like large scale because if you think about it we developed it in the lab and then all of a sudden we're running at these huge manufacturers like you know tens of thousands of bars trials and like there's a lot of change that happens when you scale up and so with Muski, we've been like a lot more systematic on like starting a commercial kitchen now we have like our own uh, like much bigger equipment. And now we've actually like run some trials at some commands for down the line, just to make Whoa. sure it's, yeah, just to make sure that it can scale up. So I would say that's, that's the biggest thing from um, a product perspective. And then honestly, just from a general innovation perspective, it's creating, like, don't create something too complicated, like boil down to like one theme, one message, like TIG was like, chickpeas and bold flavors and say, like there was a lot going on like and so as i've developed muski i'm just like pick one thing and position the hell out of it and so it's for that it's like it's muski is a fresh take on granola bars that's like right. our positioning not getting into the weeds of like all the other benefits which we do have but those are more attributes so learning how to narrow in on your message for consumers got it makes yeah. so much sense i mean yeah what a great I know, and I know at the time it was super frustrating just from the work I got to do with you, but yeah, man, what the, what an amazing, like not only like getting to learn from Peter and be within the yeah. arts organization, try to launch something, but even I would assume working with, I mean, what VaynerMedia I remember came in yeah. we working with them. So it was just like, I mean, yeah. come on. It was like, that, that was some of like the coolest components of launching a brand that you probably could have experienced having in what, 
two, three years. Yeah. And I, I was, I think 24 when I started that role. And so it I was, remember you were young. Yeah. I was young. And so I was very green and it was kind of like a lot of pressure. Like I was put into a lot of high pressure circumstances. Like I walked in, uh, to the office one day and I don't, it may have been, uh, it may have been the CEO of Kellogg's, Steve Callahan. Um, and Peter, I just like walked in cause Peter's like, bring up some TIG samples. And he just goes like, pitch us on TIG. And I'm like, oh, so like I got, I just was thrown into the fire in many circumstances, but it was, it was cool because I had to just adjust and learn. Like, you know, when you're early on in your career, it's probably easy to just like stay behind the scenes. Like I was forced out of my comfort zone so often. And with that, I think I made a lot of mistakes and probably failed a lot, but I also got a lot of good exposure and a lot of good experience in a very condensed amount of time. So it was, yeah, it was valuable. I mean, and you also got, <clears throat> you got the opportunity to try to launch something. I don't want to say with training wheels, but like you had a salary, yeah. right? So it was like, yeah, it was yeah. kind of your, it was your job to do it. But at the same time, it was, it, I mean, yeah, man, like there's like not as much risk as there would have been if you at 24, you jumped out and tried to start to take from scratch, right? A, a thousand. And we had some budget, you know, we had like yeah. some yeah. of the Kellogg's budget. Like, right. so, um, yeah, honestly, I'll say it again. It was like the perfect training ground for like starting my own thing because I, I basically learned what not to do and what to do in sure. certain circumstances. Yeah. And then to quickly hit on, just because I think it's interesting for everyone listening, you did when you when Tig was over, you did go to Clio Snacks. Yep. Was yep. that at that point? Did you already have the concept for Mooski, or was that was that still like you were ideating on what you wanted to do and you jumped to Clio? Still ideating. When I left RX Bar, I basically, cause, so I moved out to California. I left the Chicago winters behind. Um, and I had a, about like four, it was like four months or so. Basically, I was like, you know what? RX Bar was a lot. That was a lot of stress, a lot going on. And I took this job out for Clio. Um, and so basically I had like time to move from Chicago to California. And in between, that's kind of when I developed the idea I was like, wow, it'd be really cool to create like an overnight oat bar um, and like cover like the only way I thought you could really do it was cover it in like chocolate to kind of keep that like soft oat mixture together. And so I started just doing some stuff in the kitchen, like making a mess. Like I had three oh, months of basically like free time and my fiance was still working. So okay. I'm sure she loved me staying at home, like kind of messing around. But you're like, uh, honey, I, I got this sweet bar I'm making. She's like, let go of the bars. Can you move to a different category, please? (laughs) Exactly. But I, at the time, it was never like, oh, I want to do this, do this. I just like like making food products and messing around. Like I'm very experimental, even when it comes to like cooking. Like it'll be like a Tuesday night and I'll just like create like a wild dish. uh, Just like that's totally out there. I just like like making food and, and creating food products. And so, but I tried it and I was like, holy crap, this tastes good. But like Clio, awesome roll. Uh, coming on as their brand manager, moving to California. When I left and took that role, I never thought I would be doing Mooski. Um, it kind of put it in the back pocket and fully stepped into the the Clio role. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I, I, I figured it was one of those things where you were like, I need some time. But I also, I mean, again, correct me if I'm totally wrong. You're working on a, an overnight oat bar that inevitably has to be refrigerated. Yep. I feel like then whether you meant to or not going to Clio was kind of like a perfect stepping stone because you also got to learn from a brand that's yeah. using that type of supply chain. Did that help in some way? A, a thousand percent. And I would say that over my time at Clio, I just, it gave me confidence to be like, wow, I can do this. Like before oh, okay. it was kind of like, oh, this tastes good. I made some in the kitchen. 
a couple of friends tried it and I was like, oh, this is good. And then I started to realize, cause I always thought of perishable. as like, oh my God, this is so hard. Like, and it is hard. Like dealing with shorter shelf life is definitely in its own way, more difficult than like, you know, a nine month year long shelf life product, but right. seeing Clio's success and uh, just like crushing it and growing and having these huge velocities, I realized I was like, oh my gosh, if I just do this with my, my product, like I can be successful. Um, yeah, yeah. And so more than anything, it gave me like the confidence. I wasn't like super tapped into like the logistics side and like really totally understanding like cold supply chain. But it, if, if anything, it gave me confidence to be like, uh, if they can do this, I can do this. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was, was there anything that stood out to you like before Clio and just working on Mooski in your kitchen to then yeah. leaving Clio? Were there some like pretty informative things you learned when it came to, cause that's a, that's a frozen product, correct? Yeah. That's completely frozen. Oh no, Clio, Clio is refrigerated. Oh, is it refrigerated? Um, okay. Yeah. I that was frozen. Okay. No, it's refrigerated. So it's, they're actually the number, well, at least when I left, they were like number two, but behind perfect bar in the refrigerated bar category. Did yeah, not so they, know that. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. They crush it. Um, and so, I mean, I think the big thing was they have a, a shelf life that's like, I think a or maybe it's increased from there, but uh, is like closer to like a hundred days or three months. And okay. so I knew at least from a shelf life perspective, I'm like, if the product's good and we get like good velocities and good repeat rates, like with a longer shelf life, I was like, just thinking about from that perspective, we can do this. Like if it was like, you know, 15 day shelf life, like this is going to be tough. So it kind of gave me that confidence to go for perishable, knowing what I knew about perishable. And then like, I also learned like, all right, what accounts like so well for perishable, like which strategic retail accounts, which, um, which part of the grocery store, is it near produce or is it closer to dairy? Like I learned a lot about just kind of like key insights, um, about refrigerated bars, who are the key competitors. And I would say the biggest thing I learned over time was just like positioning, um, like how do you position yourself in the category? So I knew like, all right, perfect bar. They, they led the way for the entire refrigerated bar set. Their positioning is where the original refrigerated protein bar. Clio is like this unique space between like refrigerated bars and yogurt. So they had their own niche. And then honestly, after that, I think there's a lot of white space, like not a lot of super proven brands. And so I kind of thought like, oh, no one has said like, here's all of shelf stable granola bars, nature Valley, chewy, whatever it may be. No one's done a fresh take on that. And so in many ways, I thought there's a lot of runway for growth. And I started, I only learned about that by being constantly in like the data and understanding like how every brand was turning, how our brands positioning themselves. So I got a lot of exposure to the category and the competitive landscape. Very cool. And, and Robert, yeah. I would tell you like that, that piece right there is at least from the conversations I constantly have, that seems like that's the hardest part of getting started how yeah. did you how did you leverage like how did you gain access to data like that just to kind of wrap your head and, and honestly like learn yeah i mean well so we had access to like obviously like spins data and, okay. and that type yeah. of like, yeah so like i was i was in charge of you know putting together the business reports so dealing like putting together hey these are our velocities like this month and like this is how the competitive uh competitors are doing but yeah. um oh, yeah. Obviously. I think that makes sense. The, pos the positioning is so important because like, even if you think about like RX bar, right, it's like a date bar. Mm -hmm. And then Lara bar is like also like a date bar. They're like very similar in many ways, but they're like positioned totally different. Like 
on paper, you'd say like, is there really room for like RX bar with something like Lara bar? And so I think like, it's all about how you talk about the product. And at first when I was uh, launching Moosey, I was like, oh, it's an overnight oat bar. And I realized like talking to people, they like didn't really get that right away. And then like the, the origin of the product is my family's from Switzerland and overnight oats there's called Moosey. And so oh. it's kind of like Moosey in a bar. Moosey is a play on the word Moosey. And so I played around with a lot of things. And then I was finally like this, like this position is not working. I was like, what is this a better version of? And I was like, it's a better, fresher version of a granola bar. And so I started to do demos and start to talk about it that way and be like, yeah, it's like a fresher granola bar. Um, and people were like, oh, that like, I don't like stale granola bars or that like like dry texture. This is much softer and it, it just clicked. Ah. And I would say that was like the biggest unlock was like literally hearing from consumers how they're using it. I just like kind of took that and used it as our kind of positioning angle. And I think that's why it's been attractive to a lot of retailers and consumers and, and media. That's really cool, man. I didn't yeah. know that. I, I was so curious how the how the name came to be. Um, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So you, wow, yeah. So you, okay. So you you felt like you had <laughs> like enough information, I guess, in the tank to to at least give it a go. Yep. I still want to know. So you're at Clio. You you feel like you have a hunch just from like a consumer perspective, what's moving on shelf and what your brain has differentiated. Yeah. How did you go from like? having a job at Clio and messing around in the kitchen. Like there must've, what were some of the key steps in between there where you, you just decided this is, this is what I want to go do and pursue. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the first part is just financially making sure you're supported. So me and my fiance had that conversation. Like I'm about to be a broke ass for a little while. Can we like get through it from that person? Like that's just like fundamental, right? If you can't like live and like buy your groceries, like, you just can't do it. And so I needed to make sure I had like a financial stability from that perspective. And then honestly, at that point, it's just a matter of confidence in the product. Um, and just kind of like going for it. Like we're, yes, I'm engaged right now, but like we don't have kids, we don't have a house we're renting. And honestly, a big thing was like COVID, like, has there ever been a better time to start a business? Like no one expects an office anymore. Everyone's remote. You can build a team remotely. I was literally like, there's no better time. Like I came off RX bar where I learned how to innovate and do R and D stuff. Clio, where I was more like in the weeds of refrigeration and uh, brand management. I was like, if I don't do it now, there's always going to be like some risk and like, uh, should I do this? But I was like, this is the best time to do it. And so once you do it, you just like work like crazy and you just take the leap of faith and kind of all works out. At least it has no, so far. So no, yeah, I love that. It's so true. I, I I do really love hearing stories of people who who made that connection during COVID because yeah. there really is two camps. It seems like there were people who tried to mess around with things and launch something or try something new, and there's a lot of folks that kind of just took the extra time to watch Netflix. And it's a yeah. bummer when you hear that because I don't think we'll get time like that back ever again, right? I mean, ne never. Yep. If you're back in the office, I mean, there's not a lot of those right now. I don't think that's really going to be a thing, no. to be like, honest. But So much more, even like time at home, that's the key, right? Like on the weekends, so like mess around with things. Like you, we just spent so much time at home. I like it's, it was at least from my personality type, it was a perfect environment to be like, all right, like let's, Let's like do this. Um, sure. Yeah. So the ad, love that. And I, yeah, pump for you for like jumping in and, and taking the risk because it's obviously yeah. a tough thing to do. And 
again, timing is everything. Do you think just in general, um, when you made that decision, I'm thinking through this, like you're in the middle of COVID. Did you come to a point where you were like, okay, I want to start selling this for you though. It's different. And we've talked about this off the podcast. Like you don't necessarily have the easiest product to then go and just like sell online for example, yeah. to go test yeah. it. So you really needed retail. What were the first couple steps there? Cause in my mind, and I've never yeah. built a product and launched something like that. Yeah. You got to go figure out packaging. Where do you go figure yeah. out who does the packaging? What it looks <laughs> like, like there's a lot of steps to go from, okay, I'm even going to do this to, I have a product yeah. ready for shelf. Yeah. So my, my whole RX bar experience, I just developed a massive network of contacts, whether it was packaging, like five different types of wrappers, film suppliers, carton suppliers, corrugate suppliers. I know like on a texting basis with like every like flavor house, like in oh, the country, like, so like yeah. I just developed cause I, I had to develop TIG like literally by like calling on suppliers. And so I had like a, a huge network established of all the raw materials that go into the product and like oats aren't like super hard to source. And so at that point it was just a matter of like, I didn't have to figure that all out. Like Google, like how do you get, oh, like I basically tapped into my entire network and literally within like six weeks after I quit Clio, I had my first round of packaging. Like I moved wow. very quickly because I knew how to like, graphic designers, like everyone I had like kind of like the playbook. And so it's just a matter of like getting everyone together and like putting it together really quickly. Um, but I like, I launched my first bars like down the street in Seaside market in uh mock-up packaging. So like, um, yeah. Chelsea, who's now on the team, like who does all our finance, she would probably close her ears if she heard I did this, but <laughs> I really wanted to test out some things quickly. And so I spent like $500 on ordering mock-ups that I would then put like crappy uh, like package bars in, put them on shelf, and then I would check the store every single night and take the card in, the mock-ups off the shelf and just reuse them. So I did that for like two Whoa. or three months. Yeah, I just reused the packaging or the mock-ups. Wait, and then, so how so, would it, so you'd have like fake ones behind the, the real one? No, so I would have like, I'm trying to see if I have one on me. So like I would like have like a mock-up like this Okay. Um, and I, I'd print like 10 per flavor and they can make those in like a week and then overnight them to you. And so like I'd sell through the bars and then I would just put these back on shelf. So I take them home, repack them and put them back up. And so oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah. I did that just to learn like what, what skews move quickest. Um, and from there, like and the these, first, sorry, these bars, are these like made in your kitchen? Uh, they were made in a commercial kitchen. Okay. Yeah. Right, cool. Yeah. yeah. Maybe like a batch or two were made in my kitchen. But... Well, it's just funny to think like you kind of have, I just don't, I think that's <laughs> how you have to do it. It's funny to think if you're the consumer and you're trying it for the first time, yeah. that's like inevitable. You're, you're getting scrappy and just trying to make it work. Yeah. I, we scrappy would be an understatement. It was very scrappy, but all you have to do is like, you can make a good product. And then like you quickly learn, like I very quickly learned that like, peanut butter type flavors or like more indulgent flavors were doing better. I originally had like a berry flavor and like an apple cinnamon and they weren't selling as well, but it, it literally took like two months on shelf to like get that insight. And like, okay. we didn't spend a lot of money to get that insight. And so like it, I worked through a lot of the early iterations and key decisions like skew optimization, like really early on. Wow. So you, it, so you just took some like really small sample sizes in retail to then make yeah. broad swift assumptions that like it probably won't work when I'm everywhere. 
Yeah, it was probably like a collection of like five stores that we like got gathered that data and then made those decisions. Yep. Got it. I mean, it's smart. It's it's like a minimal viable product. That whole MVP concept. Did exactly. you? This is gonna be a financey question. <laughs> like where my head goes is like when you when you you have a product and you're you know all yeah. these people, so you're you're sourcing, you're trying to get packaging. How much did you do you think if you look back now, like before you even sold a bar on shelf, like how much did it cost to hire like a, a graphic designer and to get packed? Like I'm just trying yeah. to wrap my head around like for most people who have a product they would like to go yeah. sell. Like how much roughly do you think you had to invest to just get something designed and out there? Yeah. So from a design perspective, I highly recommend anyone just like works with like freelancers, like do not work with any type of like marketing agency or anything early on. They charge an hourly rate. And I think like the key with that. So like the first designer I worked with on Mooski packaging, like I had no budget pretty much. So my brother works for like a craft brewery back home in DC. Oh, cool. Um, and the guy who does all their beer labels did the original Mooski packaging. I can and, totally see that now that you say yeah. that, like it, it does remind me of that. That's super yeah. cool. Okay. So he did all the initial artwork and he did it for 15, $15 an hour, not 50, not like two fifty, like $15 an hour. And like, he would just like bang out these sketches and then color them. And then I would send that out and like get it printed quickly. And, um, wow. but on the packaging side, the way I approached it was I knew, and again, this goes back to like RX bar, like even Clio, like things are going to change, like yeah. order expensive, very few quantities up front. Like I would order like a thousand pouches at a time and they were like, I don't know, $2 a pouch more than the cost per bar. But I knew that I just needed to get the product on shelf and to iterate and learn about it. And so I swallowed like the high cost, knowing that once we get through that costly phase, we're going to have a much more refined product uh, that that then we can start to order some of the higher quantities or the bigger minimums and, and then start to get, get some costs back. But like, you kind of have to just accept that like, you're going to eat up some money up front on like expensive packaging. And I would assume on the flip side of that, if you're too obsessed with every penny, it's, yeah. there's something to be said about how slow it would take you to actually get up and running yeah. and by the time you, you know, Maybe you save a few hundred bucks, but you wasted yeah. months and months and months to test. Well, imagine launching your first product and uh, you've ordered 20,000 units and two months later you make a formula change. Like you can't, like the, the pro like products change over time, right? You get feedback from consumers. You learn more about shelf life. Like the first like year and a half or two of a product, like it's going to change. And so it's all about like, ordering just enough to manage getting through those changes. Mm. And now where we're at with Mooski is like, okay, we feel really good about the product and where it's at. We have a couple more changes we want to make this next order. We're probably going to order like hundreds of thousands of impressions of film because like we feel confident that the formula is not really going to change a lot. So we're not going to have to do another packaging change at least wow. for a while. Yeah. That's wild, man. Yeah, yeah, it just seems like that beginning. That that's really cool. You kind of had a leg up to figure that out quickly and could do that. Yeah, yeah. You so you launch in a few stores. You're tweaking. You're moving along. At that point, yeah. are you? I'm sure you're not making like a ton of sales, but are you making enough to at least flow some money back into the business? And it, did it help, or was it still just like you're kind of burning cash until you got some bigger doors? Honestly, just burning cash until you get into bigger. Like you're, if you go in with the mindset that right away you're trying to, you know, be profitable. Like I, 
you're either going to price yourself out of the competition, right? You're ordering like, like 50 pound bags of oats that are like $3 a pound. Like you're not going to make like a profitable product. Um, so it was really just about creating like the best possible product. And so really it was getting into different stores and understanding like what's, how do the SKUs turn? What are their velocities? And like, how do I optimize that? And then what are like the types of stores that do well? Like in what areas of San Diego? Like, is it more affluent neighborhoods? Is it, um, is it certain demographics? Is it coffee shops? Uh, kind of picking up on those insights and just accepting like, this is not going to be profitable right now. But if we figure this all out now, by the time we scale up and we have like our three best SKUs and the best formula and we understand where it works, then we're going to make our way towards profitability. Got it. And I, yeah. you know, I always think back to the RX story, Peter and Jared spent a lot of time in RX boxes in, or sorry, CrossFit <laughs> boxes, RX boxes uh, in CrossFit gyms and boxes, whatever you want to call yeah. them. Um, but for you, have you, have you kind of found a niche like that yet? Or cause I think of your product, I'm sure there is a niche, but I also think it, there's something to be said. It, it seems like such a, a product that honestly, like it, I hate saying this cause it's, it's not necessarily true, but like all types of consumers love granola like, bars. Yeah. It just seems like such an, like a good product that actually can hit on a very wide audience. A hundred percent. And I, I would say like, we are different than RX in that way. Like Peter, when he developed RX Barrows, like he was solving a problem for CrossFit. He was ingrained in that community. I didn't go into this thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to solve a problem for like rock climbers or something. Like I just, it was just the natural flow of my career path where I was like, oh, I like overnight oats. No one's made that in a bar. I got this Clio experience. This is how I think we should position it after learning more. And you're like, I think the beauty of, well, there's pros and cons. Like, I don't think we can send like target like such a specific audience where we know that they're going to go like gangbusters over it. Mm. Um, but with that, I also think we are broadly appealing. Like we can, we can live outside of that audience. Like I find that like, you know, moms are loving the product, but so are like young professionals. Um, interestingly, like probably the place I get the most DMs from like, or the most like consumer interaction is we sell in all the hospital systems or a lot of the hospital systems in San Diego and nurses love this product because oh. they're like strapped for time. They want something fresh and tasty. And so I've kind of picked up like different pockets where this product is doing well, but we don't have like, as Peter would like to say, like an early, a core, like obsessed early adopter, at least not that I've discovered yet. Got it. And you guys, correct me if I'm wrong. Are, do you, you're not, you're not, are you are shipping on your website now, right? Do you? No, no uh, not yet. We are uh, in the next month launching on online grocery. Nice. So okay. uh, I'll share a little bit of, more about that when the time comes, but okay. for us, that's big uh, because shipping perishable, like we've talked about this a little bit, yeah. like it's very hard. You like shipping parcel to all these people with ice packs and liners and it's just very expensive. expensive. And so what this on online grocery launch is going to do for us, it's we basically ship to them in bulk and then they put it into like these little like boxes and like meal, uh, like online grocery packages. And so they oh, do cool. the heavy lifting on the logistics front. So that's, we'll see how it goes, but I'm super pumped about that. Oh, good for you, man. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah Cause I was going to say, I mean, I'm sure one thing that's got to be a, an uphill battle for you guys is without having the easily accessible online op option, like you find it yeah. at a hospital, you find it at the coffee shop. That was something at RX that was, I, I feel like just caught fire was 
we were just available everywhere yeah. online. So it was like if you found it in one of these little bodega type places, it was easy to then go find other places for you guys. Like people must currently at least, which is you guys are early in this, they have to go back to these same locations, right? And pick one up yeah. off the shelf. Yeah. But you also, you can learn a lot both ways, but I think you can learn so much in retail, like just like oh, going yeah, into the store, seeing how things turn. Like I've like, uh, all the people I used to work with who are on the sales front, like Mike Scabuso probably appreciate yeah. this about me now. Cause like usually the marketing team, which I always was like, doesn't like always appreciate the sales team as much as they probably should. But I'm like going into stores and like re-merchandising and making like checking the back stock to see like, I'm like learning a lot about how to make this work in retail, which if your business is going to be that, like, unless you're just like a, a like B2C, B2B business, like if you're going plan on having a lot of stake in retail, like I'm learning a ton about how to succeed in retail and kind of just focusing on that, which is awesome. That's no, I was going to say it's, it's, it is really good. And it's yeah. funny. This is just my anecdotal experience. It seems like, you know, obviously, you know, me and what, what I do, but my like e-com yeah. I'm bullish on, but <laughs> I think through COVID and coming out the other side, what's really interesting is there's just a lot of new people in retail, like a lot of yep. brands that have popped up over the last five to six years. And so there's just a lot to learn that I think, I think a lot of brands, maybe, you know, they focus so much on e-com that yeah. I wonder if retail kind of, you know, was something that just hasn't been the hot topic lately, but there's obviously, you know, I, and I knew this from revenue management. It was like, I mean, retail, there are some serious volume when you add all of the retail up it's it's enormous it's what most businesses are built off of yeah and i i'd say the other thing is you you learn so much by just being in a store and this was like a recent takeaway but i was up in la doing we we're in bristol farms they're one of our best retail partners right now and uh, i was doing a demo and i noticed everyone walking by was just like taking pictures of everything like scan mm. like taking pictures i was like why the hell is everyone taking pictures of stuff like who are these people so I stopped one of them and I was like, why, why are you like scanning or taking pictures? And they're like, oh, I'm an Instacart rep. And I'm like, oh, I started ask, stopping everyone. I kid you not. It seemed like 80% of the shoppers in there were Instacart reps. So then I take that information and I go back and I started launching an Instacart campaign, putting dollars against Instacart ads specifically towards Bristol Farms. And so like you learn a lot by just like being in the environment, who's shopping, like, seeing how like things are just like working and rotate talking to like different managers. And so like I've gone in a crash course in sales, which <laughs> I think has just helped me out a lot. And it helps you from a marketing standpoint because you, it's all very abstract when you're just like on the marketing team and you're like thinking about like, Oh, shopper marketing and coupons, blah, blah, blah. But like, sure. It's getting to see the flip side, how people are buying and like how the retailers are actually operating and how the managers are, putting the product on shelf makes you a better marketer in my opinion. That I totally agree. Um, Instacart is an area where we're focusing more and more now. I would tell yeah. you like in the last 12 months, it's become, it's become like probably my second most watched platform. And I work with brands on Instacart. It's why? yeah, Cause it yeah. really is. It's becoming like this place where it really mirrors e-commerce and, and buying things on your phone yeah. and your retail experiences. And it, it and is bridging them. a gap for a yep. lot of brands who ne that can't necessarily pull off um, selling direct to consumer right now if it's just too expensive. So it, yeah, exactly. Instacart's a huge one, man. That's a, that's a good call yeah. out. Yeah. Um, obviously through all this, the one thing that keeps coming <laughs> to mind for me is, is it's not, and I know this again, just from different brands, like it, it's an expensive endeavor. And so yeah. for you, 
How have you thought about that as you've gone through this process of building building Mooski? Did you did you start off just bootstrapping this? Did you raise some friends friends and family money? I would love yeah. to know just like from a financial side of things yeah. how you thought about getting this <laughs> off the ground. You know that's my background. Yep, I mean it's it's all been bootstrapped, all friends and family. Um, I've tapped into friends and family network. There's also like I'm part of Natri San Diego out here, which is nice. like I'm pretty sure like Chicago has like a Natri Chicago yeah, I think like. So you just network, you meet people, um, that if they like your product, you, they're willing to put a little bet on you. And so, um, you know, like, I'm sure you've heard this too, like fundraising's hard right now. And so I think the key is just like, for us at least has been tapping into people who like know us and trust us. Like it's much harder to convince someone you've never met before to give you like 25 K. But if you're talking to like someone like, who knows you and knows like you're going to work your ass off to make this happen. Like it's easier to raise money that way. And so we've really tapped into like close friends and family network. We're starting to expand our circle a little bit now and kind of like talk to more like angel investors and, and so forth. But yeah, it's all, all been bootstrapped and uh, kind of raised that way. You know what, Robert, that's really smart. And I, and I've been hearing lots and lots of that, that brands are struggling to, I think even see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, whether it comes yeah. to the end of this year into 2024, if they just can't raise more money. Yep. And that's kind of where my head's been. And it's funny, like I have some folks coming on from the industry soon to talk about just the capital raise situation. Yeah. But you're one of the f few people that I've heard really say, like you're kind of going back to like closer and closer to you, which is like yeah. real close friends and family. Um, I think it's really interesting because I think sometimes yeah. people overlook probably how much opportunity is right around you, especially if you're a young brand with a really promising product. And they're, they're going to ride with you if things get tough, right? So we've had a couple of friends and family, you know, put in a little chunk and then put in another little chunk. And then we get like a, a big retail win and they're like, oh, like put in some more. So I think that trust is is huge this early on. Yeah. How, and how, how for people listening who want to launch something and they don't feel like they could do it without raising some money so they couldn't bootstrap it. Do you have any advice now that you've been at this for a little while? Like- I'm sure that's a complicated question, but I always yeah. wonder like, you know, you know, you're thinking about holding equity, like how much equity should I give up? How much should yeah. I raise? Are there things you've like, kind of thought through and maybe even done wrong that you could share with the audience today? That would be helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think you, well, first I want to give a quick shout out Chelsea who she works with us at RX for yeah, She was on the finance team. So I knew early on, like finance isn't like my strong, strong suit. And so a big part of bringing Chelsea on was, she's been like, we've been very like capital efficient. Like we don't spend money unless there's like clear ROI or something like, no, we need to spend that to make this ha like get new packaging or something like that. So align yourself with someone, if it's not you, who's very capital uh, efficient and conscious of like the whole P and L and like how to spend money efficiently. So that was like very key. So I'd say like, find that if it's not you find that person to help you with that. Um, and I honestly, this is just my opinion. I think like you need some money like to get started. Like, like I said, I do know some brands that are, you know, basically cause they're like small and they're buying stuff, like their cogs are expensive up front. They're pricing themselves like, like out of, out of the market essentially. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I'm sure they're bringing in some money that way, but they're also then like not turning as well. And they have a whole other host of problems and from my experience, you need like a solid chunk of money just to get off the ground to work through everything. Um, and I think like 
go go to friends and family first um and then tap into like any other networks like your like local like whether it's work networks or like people that you've worked with before who know you and trust you um that's the best way that i've found to do it yeah love it yeah and it seems like again I'm, this is just from the outside robert but I've, I've noticed two people that you guys brought on as advisors which i thought was super smart and it I'm sure a lot of brands do this, but maybe it's just, this is like close to home and I know you and I know Chelsea and no stop. I know the whole team really, honestly, like the whole team plus like who you brought on, but like bring on Scavuzzo and Dwight as advisors. Like, I'm like, that's so smart. You bring, you're like bringing on people who've also been in the trenches and and kind of know what they're doing. What was the thought behind like bolting people on in that way? Is it just like getting more experienced folks at the table, like can only benefit you guys? Yeah, I think getting more experienced folks to the table that complement what Chelsea and I do very well. So uh, I'm very like product marketing focus and Chelsea is very like finance supply chain. So like Mike is like a no brainer, like first of all, he's just the man, but he also worked at Clio, right? Um, Getting a refrigerated product into like key natural accounts. Then he jumped to midday squares and helped them like grow. And so like the guy like just has an incredible network. He knows how to grow refrigerated bar brands. So like bringing him on as like an advisor has like really allowed us to tap into like what he has that we don't already have. Mm. And then again, that working relationship, like trust, like we don't have to work through like getting to know each other. Like we know Mike very well. Like right. we can be like, Hey, can you help us with this? And like, he'll do it. Like he's, he's the man. Um, and then Dwight on the flip side, uh, was Chelsea's boss at RX Bar and then Chelsea's boss at Zoa. And so yeah. like there's that working relationship and he brings like a different, I mean, he was a CFO at RX Bar, uh, Kashi, Kellogg's, et cetera. So like he brings like a much higher level like vantage point of of finance. Well, Robert, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, obviously <laughs> you're you're early on in this, but a lot of success so far. In the, I mean, it feels like overnight that I saw you post about it for the first time where it's at today. So first of all, folks, First and foremost, can't talk today. Uh, congratulations on all that, man. It's been fun to watch from the outside and, and see you guys grow. Um, yeah. As we get closer to the end here, I, I would love to ask founders and anyone on the podcast a, a couple questions. So I want to throw yeah. these at you. The, the first one, Robert, is um, source of knowledge. So obviously, I'm sure you're trying to learn stuff, but you're also heads down. Is there anything yep. you've you know read recently, podcasts you've listened to, anything like that you could share with the audience today that uh, has stood out to you? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would honestly, uh, this is like kind of, I don't know if this is the best answer, but I'd say like talk to as many people as you can and just like get their experience. It might not be what's right for your business, but like the more conversations you have with other people and like learning how they did things, like we'll just benefit you like we chelsea and i hopped on a call with like jared um oh cool the other co-founder obviously of rx bar and like he gave us some nuggets that literally helped us think through like our next packaging redesign based on like his experience with rx and so like i wouldn't i can't point to like one source but i'd say it's just like talk to everyone like you're not going to have all the answers far from it so just like pick up the phone call people text people reconnect with people network and try to get like little bits of information from everyone. That's super smart, man. I mean, that's yeah. just like the scrappiness that you need in it just to build anything. I think yep. it's like not being afraid to ask. I love that. Yeah. Um, the next one is, is tools. So for you, whether it's planning business goals, personal goals, all the way down to just getting shit done on a daily basis, mm-hmm. what do you use 
to do that? Is it pen and paper? Do you have like a planner you use? Are you an app guy? I'm excited to hear your answer here because I, I I know how your brain works a little bit. Yeah. So I well, one thing I'll say just tools in general, like or skills, is prioritization. Like, um, I never really understood what prioritization meant till I was doing Mooski. Like, you have a million things, so like literally just constant. Like what I'm doing right now, what I always ask myself is how can I raise money and how can I grow the business? Like, that's like just what I'm focused on. Like we need some money to grow and we need sales. And so like every single day, I just ask myself a reminder on my calendar. That's what can I do today to push those forward? Ooh, and if I, like I get that. through part the day and I'm like, I haven't worked on that yet. I'll shoot my cousin a text like I did today and say, Hey, do you want to hop on the phone? Like we're fundraising. And like, so like every single day, those two things and, and those priorities might change. But I'd say like, just put something on your, I'm very calendar focused, put a reminder on your calendar. If it hits that time of the day and you haven't done it yet, stop and just do that. Yeah. That's really smart, man. I, yeah. I live in the calendar and I, I don't probably don't do that enough. I do it with yeah. a lot of things, but that's a great, great idea of just whatever your priority is. If it's your really, your, if it's truly your priority, it should be on your calendar yep. every day, right? Put it every day and you'll, it's annoying, but like you get reminded. So. Yeah. I, I use uh, <laughs> my calendar and like just the reminders piece yeah. on uh mm-hmm. on my phone because that's that is the same thing it, like won't go away until you either hit yep. you did it or you gotta like move it to later i love that that's a really yeah. good one robert well, one other thing i'll throw in there real quick is my mind is always just racing when i fall asleep of like things i need to do every night before i go to bed i send myself an email with things i need to do so like, mm. there's obviously other ways to do like to do's but it's things where I, I wake up then in the morning and I see that email from myself and I just pound those out first thing in the morning. If I like go to bed and I'm like, I didn't get to do that today. Wow. So do you have like a consolidated list or something somewhere, but then you also use email or do you just yeah. kind of rely on that email? I do have a, a list elsewhere for just like general act, but if it's something that's like my nighttime, like, damn, I didn't get to this today. Just do it quickly. The next morning, I just reply like to my like running email feed. Oh, and that's cool. So you have like this running email of just a yeah. bunch of things over the years. And it'll just be like a couple of things where it's like, didn't get to set up Instacart ads or something like email myself that. And then I do it first thing in the morning before any meetings. Very cool. That's a yeah. really good idea. Wow. You dropped some, some easy ones that everyone <laughs> can use. Um, Robert, the last one with a minute left here. Yeah. What, uh, what, how can people follow along with Mooski? How can people yeah. get involved and try the product and how can they reach out to you if they haven't, you don't want to learn more? Yeah. I mean, follow, follow along like on social at Mooski snacks is our like Instagram handle. We're also on TikTok. I haven't been doing a great job on that. Um, uh, buy us in stores, check us out. We're in the, mostly the SoCal market, but we're expanding out of state, uh, coming this, this summer. And so check us out at Bristol farms, mother's market. Um, and then shoot me an email, Robert at Mooski snacks.com. If you uh, want to reach out about anything, um, or just want to chat. Yeah, I'm available. Love it. That you, you don't get very many people throwing the the old email out. But oh, hey. Well, hopefully you get some good inbound. I love it. Like that. I said, the more conversations, the better. So. I was going to say, maybe <laughs> someone will be interested in, in uh, investing too. You never know. Yeah. yeah awesome, never man. Know. Well, Robert, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate you taking the time and uh, really enjoyed the conversation, man. Yeah, this has been fun, dude. Thanks, thanks for having me on. And let's definitely stay in touch as uh you're obviously building your own business so yeah i, I, yeah. I want to catch up separately and hear about how that's going sometimes let's do it man i would love that cool